I trust you are all well fed and ready to keep going. I want to read a quote for you from the great Martin Lloyd-Jones. You all heard of him? The good doctor, as I refer to him. He's, he was a medical doctor and then and did quite well with it, but then decided the Lord had called him to ministry, and so he uh, studied for that. So an incredibly sharp man, very well read, and he says this, I defy you to read the life of any saint that has ever adorned the life of the church without seeing at once that the greatest characteristic in the life of that saint was discipline and order. Invariably, it is the universal characteristic of all the outstanding men and women of God. Obviously, it is something that is thoroughly scriptural and absolutely essential. Well, according to the good doctor, if we were to peruse the pages of history, if we were to look through the men and women, even of our day, those who are accomplishing things for Christ, those who are marked by godliness, one of the things that we'd quickly find is that they are marked by discipline. Now, I don't know about you. I mentioned this just uh, earlier, in fact, but uh, I've only I have only heard two sermons in my life on discipline. And one was in college that basically revolutionized how I was thinking about my life. <laughs> uh, and I'll share some more about that later. The second one, I had to go search for it because I, I was trying to find sermons on self-discipline. I found, found another one. But uh, again, I just think that going along with our theme of Christian character, these are things that are, to borrow the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, thoroughly scriptural and absolutely essential. And yet we, as a church, haven't done the best job of really emphasizing these things. So one of our goals today as we, as we conclude this three-pronged approach is to really leave you with this idea that self-discipline is not only absolutely essential for your life, but I would argue that it is the means by which you affect all other of your godly disciplines. And let me give you a really easy illustration to understand that. You know now what it looks like, or hopefully a better idea of what it looks like to be humble or to be loving, right? But if you're tracking with what we've been talking about so far, how is it that you can, for lack of a better term, rise to the occasion to be humble or loving? You can't rely on feelings. You can't rely on your emotions. Those will desert you. I mean, those desert you perhaps even after lunch. You know, maybe, maybe you'll start to get tired and your feelings wane, you know. So if you can't rely on emotions, you can't rely on feelings, what is the means of godliness? And what I would actually argue, and this is partly based on Galatians 5, in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit Love, joy, peace. He lists all of the fruit of the Spirit. And then the last one he lists is self-control. And although I'm not sure that there's an order intentional for all of them, 
it does seem intentional that he would start with love and that he would end with self-control in Galatians 5, 22 through 23 with the fruit of the Spirit. And the reason for that is because love is really the core definition of what encapsulates all of what we do, right? And you, you saw that when we were marching through the definition. Love uh, basically defines everything. Uh, it really encapsulates our entire existence. But I think self-discipline or self-control is, is utilized last as the fruit of the Spirit to kind of illustrate or emphasize the fact that this is the funnel through which these characteristics are exercised. So to bring it back to, what I, to the illustration I just gave, uh, previously, if there's somebody in your life that you must love, how are you going to love them if you don't want to? Very simply, you do what you don't want to do. That is self-discipline. Uh, self-discipline, as has been defined by multiple people, is simply just doing what you need to do when you don't want to do it. That's all it is. And yet, you know, this isn't, this isn't, uh, you know, this isn't some entrepreneurial lecture or this isn't some, you know, how to get rich by being, living like a CEO the rest of your life. It's, it's not that kind of talk at all. What, what we need to zero in on is that self-discipline is actually for the Christian a means of godliness. And, and we're not in this to make money. We're not in this to be viewed as successful. We want to be pleasing to the Lord. That's what it is. And so an exercise of self-control and self-discipline over our sinful and often deceived hearts is very, very important. So I'm going to give you, what we're going to do today is I'm going to give you four reasons we need to practice self-discipline, and then I'm going to give you uh, 13 ways that you can grow in self-discipline. So lots of practicality here, hopefully. But four reasons to practice self-discipline. So the first that I think is, is very important to understand is that self-discipline is a core command within the church. All right? So we have lots of places where this shows up, but... I just really want to camp out in Titus 2 for a, for a moment. Uh, Titus 2, again, uh, we, we looked at Titus 3 previously, and what I mentioned remains true, that Titus is a book that was written to Paul's pastoral apprentice, Titus, giving him instruction on what to pass along to the people in the church. So whatever this is, it's going to be really practical. He, uh, Titus is one of my favorite books just because it's, Every page is dripping with a practicality for ev everyone in the church. And what we read in Titus 2 is basically the paradigm of how we are to interact as believers and what we should expect to teach one another. And so observe with me uh, just the, the very clear descriptions that Paul gives. In Titus 2, he says, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's verse 1. So verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. So we saw self-controlled being zeroed in. Verse 3, older women are likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and 
So train the young women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled. So there again, you have older women are teaching the younger women to be self-controlled. And so it encapsulates both older men or older women and younger women. And then he moves on to verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And it's one of the more interesting observations, I think, that that's it. Like everybody else has more commands, right? It's almost as if there's a understanding that young men have certain propensities and this is what they really need to work on is young men really need to be working on self-control. And I think that that would apply to lots of things. It could apply to uh, sensuality. It could apply to anger. Um, Young men are just very raw and emotional at times, right? And so Paul's admonition is that make sure you teach the younger men to be self-controlled. So everybody here, you know, there's there's a lot of different instruction that he gives, but everybody is taught to be self-controlled here. That's what ties all the groups together. Older men, older women, younger women, and younger men, especially younger men. All of those are tied in. And just in case, you know, you might say, okay, that should include everybody. Older women, older men, younger women, younger men. That's everybody. Just in case you felt left out, though. Notice in verse 11 of Titus 2, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. So in other words, this is for everybody now. Just in case you missed it, the whole point of the grace of God appearing, bringing salvation, is to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. That, that's a little different than how we often talk in the church. Most of the time, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying this is wrong, but most of the time we really emphasize, hey, we are saved by, by grace through faith. Amen. You can't earn your salvation. Amen. I agree with all that, right? Praise the Lord that that is so true. The Bible is unambiguous on that point. It's crystal clear. But side by side in these texts, I mean, even in this text, it's the grace of God that has appeared bringing salvation, but what does it train us to? What's the outcome of that? What's, what are we to look forward to? It's to train us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. In other words, your life should not look the same before and after salvation. There should be a change. You are made new in Christ, a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. And this is something that I think sometimes we, we miss. And sometimes we, we think to ourselves, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. But it actually matters a lot. Even in Titus 2 here, we actually see, uh, we, could, we could say, uh, we, could, we could look at the purpose clauses here in Titus 2 and find why this is so important. Um, notice verse Well, notice verse 5. So, uh, training the younger women to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. And then you have a purpose clause there at the end of verse 5. 
that the word of God may not be reviled. So in other words, what Paul's saying is that we train and focus on this godly character. And we're going to zero in on self-discipline here specifically, but, but we focus on this godly character so that the word of God may not be reviled. Because what happens to the world is we say this is what a Christian looks like. But then the world sees us and they say, eh, I don't know. They say one thing, but they live a totally different way. Historically, in the early church, this was one of the main attractions to the gospel, is that people could not help but recognize Christians were just different. They just were, they were completely different. And there was a, a strong attraction to the gospel through the, the discipline and the self-control that Christians exemplified. Uh, if you, even if you go uh, further, further down in verse 8, <clears throat> talking about the characteristics that Titus was supposed to model, and then in verse, the middle of verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Another purpose clause, uh, very similar, and here again he's saying, so that those who want to slander you, those who want to speak evil of you, they can't because your character is in control. And then ultimately, verse 10, um, the third purpose clause there, not pilfering, showing good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Well, that's basically just saying they become Christians based on how you live. And that, that's what's at stake here. It's not, it's not just theoretical. It's not just, oh, we should probably do a better job of this. No, there are lives at stake. There are lives at stake in living a godly, holy life before the watching world. And especially more important is this, as the culture continues to do a nosedive into depravity and wickedness, because then the contrast becomes all the stronger. And of course, we'll suffer more as that happens. And I don't want to say, I don't want to say that flippantly like that's no big deal, but the reality is that this is our obligation. Come what may, our obligation is very clear in how we need to live and how we need to exercise self-control and discipline in our lives so that there are unbelievers who adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, so that they may have nothing to mock among believers. So the first reason that I would give just based on this and some of the other texts would be that self-discipline is a core command within the church. It's absolutely essential to all the people groups here. It's not just isolated to leaders. It's not just isolated to men or women. It's everybody. Everyone needs to be self-disciplined. And then my second point, which I'll make a little more brief, would be that self-discipline or self-control is from the Spirit. And so I already mentioned the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But then also, uh, since we're in the pastorals, um, just flipping over to 2 Timothy 1, in 2 Timothy 1, 7, notice how Paul describes this to Timothy. He says, for this reason, this is verse 6, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And then verse 7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 
So again, Paul's emphasizing here, as he emphasized in the fruit of the Spirit, that self-control is from the Spirit. It is something that is, to use the old-fashioned words, Spirit-wrought in our lives. It is is uh, Spirit-given in our lives. So self-discipline is from the Spirit. That's another reason to practice it. Uh, Number three, self-discipline is described as a means of godliness. And uh, 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, he says, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Remember the athletic metaphor. You discipline yourself. You train yourself for godliness. And then explaining that, he says in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 4, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You know, it's, it's funny because, I mean, I'm a, I'm a has-been, has-been athlete, okay? So I'm well removed from, from my prime. Uh, but I know that there are some, you know, athletes amongst us here today who don't realize they're past their prime, but they uh, think that they're, they're no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, I know there's, there's plenty of us who are like, yeah, I remember athletics, you know, that's good. And one of the things that we often relate to in athletics is this idea that, you know, godliness, uh, you know, bodily discipline does profit a little. It does. That, that's, that's important and whatever. But the main point of this verse is that, yes, bodily discipline, discipline does profit a little, but really the training that you need to be implementing is for godliness. Like, it doesn't say, you know, ignore physical disciplines. We'll talk more about that. But it says pursue to the nth degree a discipline for godliness. So self-discipline is described as the means of godliness. And then um, maybe one other reason, number four would be that self-discipline is the means by which we retain ministry privilege. And what I, what I mean by that um, is, is just that God gives us opportunity to function and to minister in ways that are privileged. They really are. But certain transgressions and sins would take away those privileges. And 1 Corinthians 9 is a good example of that. In 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verses 26 through 27, but really we could even start in verse 25. Uh, he says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And so his point is, if an athlete does that, you better do that as a Christian. We'll come back to that idea, is exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. This is verse 26. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So in other words, what Paul is saying is that there's certain things in life that will disqualify me. And I think there are examples of that even in church leadership where maybe you have a church leader who who falls into adultery. Remember, disclaimer on the fall part, right? Because you don't fall, you've already lost the battle on the inside using that understanding. But church leaders who engage in adultery, they can't just get back up there the next Sunday and just start teaching, right? I mean, that's just not how it works. There are certain sins that because of the public nature, uh, because of the significance of those sins, disqualify you 
from certain ministry privilege. But even on a lesser degree, think about if you were to go to your neighbor and try to share, with the, go- share the gospel with them about how, how the gospel and submitting their life to Christ, uh, how following Christ can help them overcome their alcoholic na- nature, their, their propensity for alcoholism. Christ can help you with that. And then he says, uh, and you were drunk the other night? I mean, can't really do that, right? You can't just engage in the very sins that you say Christ has power over. Very, very important. And so self-discipline is a means by which we retain ministry privilege. Similar to how, in, in many ways, the illustration would be in athletics, a lot of times you have to have a qualifying event before you can compete in the real event, like the finals or whatever. And so you do the qualifying event, and if you become disqualified in the qualifying event, you can't actually compete in the real event. And so in the Christian life, we are, we are disciplining ourselves, we're gearing up uh, so that as we, as we engage and run, we, we continue to qualify for the next event, the next event. And so we retain ministry opportunity and privilege but if we're disqualified, if we don't compete according to the rules, if we, if we uh, you know, sin in such a way that, that should publicly shame us in some ways, then that disqualifies us from usefulness. You don't lose your salvation. I'm not saying it that way. But there is a ministry privilege that, that is involved with the Christian life. And so there, there is a strong reason to be very aware of self-discipline. Now, For the rest of our time, I really want to just focus quickly on practical ways to grow in self-discipline. And the reason for this is, again, almost experiential as much as it is knowing that this is is important for all of us. But again, I think, hopefully, you see the, the, and I had to spend a little more time, I think, with showing you discipline is very important in Scripture, even though you'd probably say, okay, yeah, it's important. But... I think a lot of times we, we bypass a lot of this. There's probably a variety of reasons for that. But then the very next step is maybe a little more difficult because how do we become more disciplined? Or how do we, uh, like when I was younger in, in college, somebody pointed these things out, said, you know, we should be disciplined. It's all over the scriptures. And I said, okay, that makes sense. But really, how? I mean, if you, if you ask if you ask somebody who's into weightlifting, working out or something like that, and you, you say, okay, hey, you know what? Why don't you just go in and why don't you just squat 500 pounds? I mean, that's what you should do anyway. I mean, if you want to be a real Christian, squat 500 pounds, you know? Go and do that. Um, and that's a lot of weight for those of you who don't, don't weightlift. Um, and let's just say it would be impossible for somebody to do that without working up to it, okay? And so I, I use that as an illustration because sometimes people want to, start physically working out, but they have no idea how to, how to do that practically. And in the same sense, in, a spiritual, in the spiritual world, sometimes we say, you really need to be self-controlled and, and you really need to be disciplined. And sometimes people say, but I have no idea what that looks like. And so I think this will be helpful. And, and to start us off, the first thing you need to understand is that the, the spiritual life and the physical life are actually intertwined. And what I, mean, what I mean by that is that it's not, this isn't just some spiritual existence where we, we say, okay, that the way that you need to be disciplined, the way you need to be self-controlled is you need to lock yourself in a room for eight hours and just 
you know, spiritually meditate on your navel or something like that, you know. That's not what we encourage. That's, that's, that would, that'd be ridiculous. The thing to remember is exactly what we talked about in 1 Corinthians 9.25, where the athlete exercises control in all things. And that's the same thing for the believer. As soon as you buy into the lie, and it is a lie, as soon as you buy into the lie that you can compartmentalize your life, where I need to be disciplined in reading the Bible, but everything else doesn't matter. You're toast. You're toast. That's never how it works. In fact, well, just to use a, a uh, just very tangible example with like Olympic athletes, one of my favorite things to do is, is study and just enjoy the Olympic swimmers. And part of that's because I swam a lot growing up. And so I know kind of what it takes uh, for, or I have like a glimpse into like how much they suffer to get there. And uh, you, but the funny thing is a lot of people will watch the race, you know, however long it is. Some of the races are 15 minutes, but most of them are between a minute and three minutes. The hundreds and two hundreds, they're, they're usually less than that. So, so you watch that race. You spend two, two or three minutes of your, of your day watching that. You'd be like, that was cool. Good job, America. You won or whatever. And you're just like, okay. And you go, go on your day. But you don't realize what went on with that. Uh, Michael Phelps, for example, maybe you remember his name. He was, uh, set all sorts of records, the most decorated Olympian, basically. He won eight gold medals uh, in, in one Olympics, and, which is just an insane feat because if you think about what he did is that he won eight different races. And you have different swimmers who train their whole life for one race. And then he beat them in all these other ones. In fact, one of the times he, he swam a prelim, uh, he swam a prelim uh, to qualify for the 100 butterfly, which he qualified easily. But then he had to swim the final of a different event 20 minutes later because people, because people don't do that. People don't swim multiple events like that. And so he had to be, go from uh, immediately swimming in a prelim to then swimming in a final. And he had to you know, give his best and set a world record and all those things. And it was, it was really insane what he did. But people see that and they say, huh, I guess that's cool. But then, as um, I, I researched, like the kinds of workouts and life that he did, this probably won't surprise you given the trajectory of what I'm talking about, but Michael Phelps had no life, <laughs> just so you know. And that was actually a big form of like depression and contention for him is that he wasn't allowed to talk to anyone. He wasn't, like, basically his life consisted of getting up at 4.30 in the morning, swimming for two hours, eating a massive breakfast, uh, taking a nap, waking up at noon, swimming another practice, you know, going through a dry land routine, eating massive amounts of food, taking another nap, going for evening practice, swimming another two or three hours. So basically he's in the pool seven hours a day, Seven hours a day, you know, just like practicing, and, and they're not taking it easy. They're, they're pushing you seven hours a day. They're eating, and he, his sleep is regulated. His food is regulated. I mean, he's, he was eating over, uh, at peak training, he was eating well over 12,000 calories a day. If you think about that, that's crazy. And he was not 
He was not very large around the midsection, if you know what I'm saying. I mean, he was 6'4", but he was like a twig. And that's how much he was eating. Like, he couldn't get enough food. And, uh, yeah, so just all of this was calculated. Like, they had all the, you know, all the scientists saying, this is how much you need to eat. This is what you need to do. His whole life was run for four years leading up to that. And so, and then... Honestly, he did have a huge breakdown after that. And part of that was because he wasn't a Christian. So you train so hard for that, and then you realize, this is it? This is it? Like, he had a huge breakdown. And, you know, you might have heard about the news about how he got busted, like, doing drugs and all that stuff. And that, that was part of the sadness of it all is he, he, had, he had a form of discipline, to be sure, and he, it controlled his whole life. But then, because he didn't have the proper worldview, it just broke him, for sure. But... Use that as an illustration when it says an athlete exercises self-control in all things. I think that's what Paul means. He says an athlete exercises control in all things. And if an athlete can do that for a perishable crown, shouldn't a Christian do that for an imperishable crown? I mean, I, I remember one time uh, I was having a conversation with somebody, and it just blew my mind to think about it like this, is um, you know, th- they were explaining you know, I need to get to bed by 9 p.m. tonight because we have church in the morning. I was like, what? Why? Like, why 9 p.m.? He's like, and he, he, he explained that, well, when athletes have a race the next day, they have to get in bed to make sure they have plenty of rest so they're ready to go the next day. Why wouldn't I want to be in tip-top shape for church and give my best to the Lord, like learning and singing and doing all that? I just remember thinking, I'm like, why not indeed? It's like revolutionary. It's like, why as Christians do we think that, oh yeah, it makes so much sense to sacrifice and to, to go to bed or to eat healthy uh, for your athletic prowess, but as believers, we sometimes excuse saying it doesn't matter what we do. I mean, if we, just to put it in very, very tangible terms, if we eat in a healthy manner, if we eat in a healthy manner, we, we try to take care of ourselves, you know, that, that allows us to have more useful service to the Lord. And that's really what it's all about. It's not about the fact that it's sinful to eat a certain lifestyle or not. The point being, each and every decision we make ought to be geared around, it's not what I want, it's what's going to help me be more useful to the master. That's what self-control is all about. And so, yeah, there's going to be some things on a tangible level, a physical level, that should change in our lives. It's not just, I'm, when I'm talking about self-discipline and self-control, I'm not telling you you just need to read your Bible more and pray more, although there's probably that. Um, that is a part of it. But one of the major components is that you need to view life as, I love this phrase, interdisciplinary, meaning that every part of your life influences every other part. You're not able to compartmentalize. Your life is interdisciplinary. And so when we, when we think of this, just a, just a very easy illustration, maybe you've seen this, I know I see this in my life all the time, is that when I don't sleep as well as I should, and sometimes I'm, I, there's nothing I can do to control that, like it, with little kids and things like that, sometimes you just don't sleep. But when I'm more tired, I'm more prone to sexual temptation, I'm more prone to blowing up in anger at people, and I'm not excusing that, right? 
but that's just generally how the human condition works, is that our physicality is influenced by our spirituality, and our spirituality is often influenced by our physicality. It's because God created us as physical and spiritual beings. Okay, so physicality is not a bad thing. God created Adam and Eve, and did you know that after Christ comes back, glorious day that will be, we will be reunited with a glorified body, which is physical. So there is a physicality involved in who we are. And so some of these things I'm going to give are very tangible. And you might say, oh, that doesn't sound so, so spiritual. But that's because this is a part of a big process, okay? So the, the point on, on all this to set us up for going through these 13 practical ways to grow in self-discipline is that some of these sound very earthy, very, very too real, like they could, they could belong in a CEO lecture on, on you know, discipline and, and accomplishing things. But that's partly because we live in a fallen world and part, our lives are interdisciplinary. They, they, they work together as a, as a whole and we can't just compartmentalize them. And I would also put it this way, when you are undisciplined in some areas of your life, that opens up areas for sin to make an invasion in the other side. You might, uh, you know, I know living in a community like this, uh, farming is inherently a very disciplined uh, environment or, or occupation. It has to be. I mean, you literally can't take a day off. I remember, yeah, I remember talking to a dairy farmer one time and he told me, you know, yeah, I haven't had a vacation in 25 years. I remember thinking to myself, whoa. But then I realized, yeah, because who's going to milk your cows? Who's going to do all that? You know, it was in Wisconsin. I remember talking to him. And that's the reality is for farming, I recognize that there's a discipline involved with that. But, and this is where the, the admonition is, that I would venture even those of you who, are, who engage in farming or in other occupations that may be more disciplined or not, there are areas of our lives that we do need to grow in discipline. And so that, and until we were able to continue to grow in all these different areas, there, there are, we are being dragged down by those where the areas have not been brought in under the lordship of Christ appropriately as they ought to have been. So we're going to go through these quick, but I'll try to make a few comments on the way. And so these are 13 practical ways to grow in self-discipline. I think uh, I've been influenced by multiple in individuals for this. Uh, I, I mentioned Alex Strzok before. He had a list that was really impactful on my life. I've borrowed some from him. Uh, I've uh, picked up a few things here or there from, from people like John MacArthur and others. And so I've, I can't remember where everything comes from, but I'm just giving you kind of a broad uh, citation of, I think I get th most things from somebody. We're all borrowers. <laughs> I, I'm sure I, I, there's nothing new under the sun, but I can't remember which one goes with what. And, and as I've as I kept a list and, and wrote all these things down, it's hard for me to remember where I got all these things from, but hopefully they're helpful for us as we think through uh, this. So step number one out of the 13 practical ways, uh, the first practical way would be to pray for self-discipline. And this could go with all, everything we've talked about, but, but prayer ought to be a priority for us. We believe that God will answer prayer. And the thing that I love to encourage people about is that if you pray for something you know that he wants you to do, then you can be assured he'll answer it. I have never met anyone who, who prayed for self-discipline and begged God to give that to him who did not become more self-disciplined. Just 
fact of the matter, and I would also include humility and love in that as well. Uh, I did make it, I'm, I'm not saying you have to do this, nor am I elevating myself as a hero, but I did make it my 2024 goal to pray for uh, discipline, humility, and love every day for 2024. So, so far, I've done it. We'll see if I make it the rest of the year. See if I'm disciplined enough to make it the rest of the year. But prayer is very important because God is the one who works through us, and, and we need that help. So, number one, pray for self-discipline. Number two would be start with small things. And I think here it's probably the worst thing to try to start with the lofty, unattainable goals like, if you've been having a hard time reading scripture, don't say, all right, I'm going to spend an hour each day reading the Bible. You're not. You're just not going to do it. It's gonna, you're going to break. Uh, it's going to be very, very difficult to do that. But you know what you could do? Is you could say, I'm just going to start with one verse a day. And before you know it, you might read the verse and say, ah, I, I kind of want to go on and read some more. You know? But just say, I'm going to do one verse a day. Or just say, I'm going to do five minutes a day or something like that. You know, start small because it's important to build patterns in your life. Patterns of faithfulness, no matter how small they are, right? So start small uh, on a practical level. Just little things, even like making your bed, cleaning your car, uh, you know, doing the dishes, all those different things uh, are just tangible, practical ways of being disciplined. Some of you might say, oh yeah, I do all those things. Well, you got other, other things uh, to chip in as well, like on the, the prayer side of things, are we disciplined to spend an intentional, uninterrupted time of prayer? I think that ought to be a priority for us. Again, it doesn't have to be hours and hours of, of prayer time in your closet. You can just say, you know what, I'm going to take five minutes a day, make sure that I just put everything aside, turn off the phone, and just pray for that time. Uh, just disciplining ourselves to start small. It's just a constant reminder that you're not going to be able to climb, you know, Mount Everest. Well, let's put it this way. Uh, you guys are in the middle of Nebraska. You're going to have to start training on some elevation before you, you know, move to the uh, coastal mountain regions. You know, it's, you, you can't, uh, I actually talked with somebody who did climb Everest one time and they were like, yeah, we had to go on these training hikes and things like that at different elevations. Because it, it wrecks your body to do things like that. And you can't just jump into that. You have to build up to it. And so we need to start with small things. Number three, become organized. Become organized. The, the more organized a believer is, the more he can handle. A lot of times the reason people freak out or they become overwhelmed or overburdened is because they don't actually know how they're going to accomplish all the things that they're supposed to do. And so they say, I know I have all these things to do, but I have no plan about how that's going to happen. I don't even know what it is I need. In fact, um, I, I, I met one person who their excuse was, I don't even know where to start. And one of the reasons that they didn't know where to start was they actually didn't know what they were supposed to do because they had, they had no record of like everything that they had, they had signed up for. And so become organized. It's actually pretty simple. You can just write on a piece of paper for crying out loud. I personally like to use... Uh, you know, my smartphone now, everything is just right there. And uh, I fought that for so long, but then I just totally gave in and it was the best thing for me because I, I jive a lot better with um, technology and linking everything with a Google calendar and whatever. But you don't have to do that. It's just, you got to have some sort of system to know what you're doing and, and how, 
how much you can, you can volunteer for and all of that. So becoming organized actually helps you and writing things down gives you, gives you a, a helpful motivation to do it. Plus, you're, I hate to tell you this, if, if you haven't figured this out yet, your memory is fallible. <laughs> uh, I have had this happen before, shamefully, and maybe you have too, where you said you were going to do something or be somewhere, and then you get that call. Anyone else know what I'm talking about? You answer, you'd be like, hello? Or maybe it's even as you see the person calling, oh, no. Like, it comes to mind then. You're just like, I should have been there. I'm so sorry, you know. And really, let, let's be practical, too. Uh, failing in that area is actually a lack of love toward that person because they're, they're not prioritized, and they feel that. They don't feel loved by you. Uh, if... If President Trump had asked to meet with you, would you have prioritized that a little differently than whoever else, you know, is asking to meet with you? Right? Of course you would. And so by not prioritizing that, not, by not writing it down and making sure that there's no way you can forget that, you show somebody that you don't actually love them. And that, that hurts the relationship. It really does. So become organized. It really helps in ministry and just involvement with people. Uh, number four, beware of entertainment. Beware of entertainment. Our culture lives and breathes to, to be entertained, to glorify the selfish ambitions. And we rationalize this so easily. We, we view entertainment as, as an end a lot of times. That's, that's the goal. In fact, our culture has enshrined that into music, you know, with songs that include the lyrics, uh, I'm working for the weekend and stuff like that, right? It's just like, I, I work so that I can play, you know, that kind of thing. Well, we need to have a more holistic view of life. And we need to beware of treating entertainment as the end in and of itself or as a rationalization for, for just letting, letting ourself slide. Um, a lot of times, it's so easy to say, oh, I've worked so hard. I deserve a chance to watch this movie or or, you know, play this video game or whatever, or just you fill in the blank. You know, a lot, of, a lot of people deal with it differently. But much better if we train ourselves to be productively entertained. You know, perish the thought, read a book. <laughs> Listen to some God-honoring music for a break. Go on a walk. You know, enjoy the cornfields. You know, just walk, walk in the midst of, of the corn. You know, it's... It is interesting because, yeah, I, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, actually, it gets pretty hot out here, doesn't it, too? Um, I was going to say, uh, usually in North Carolina, you just all stay in, inside until the, until the evenings or the mornings. But in, in reality, there are a lot of different ways that you can, you can entertain yourself. And, and I think it, it really behooves the Christian to train himself or herself to be entertained through pro productive means. You know, listen to good podcasts, listen to sermons. You know, just beware of making, making entertainment such a priority in your life. If someone were to take that away from you, would you be okay? How, whatever your go-to mindless entertainment is. Just beware of that. that. That really steals a lot of time. It does. Uh, and I'm as guilty as anybody uh, just with, you know, rationalizing 
you know, how I'm going to entertain myself. And then all of a sudden I realize that's time I'm never going to get back. Right. And that could have been time that I served the Lord more faithfully somehow. Uh, number five would be speak truthfully. Speak truthfully. This is an element of discipline, as we talked about, even with love uh, and, and being self-controlled. You, you control your tongue. You discipline yourself to say what is true. And maybe one of the easiest places in the church to see where that has gone awry is the famous statement, which is probably the greatest lie the church has ever told. You ready for this? I'll pray for you. Ah, yes. Did you really mean that? Well, let's put two and two together. If you tell somebody you're going to pray for them, you better write it down. <laughs> Otherwise, you will forget. And I'll forget. Uh, I've, I've sinned that way many times to promise somebody I'd pray for them. And I never wrote it down or made some effort to organize my life to make sure I prayed for them. So speak truthfully and make sure that when you promise something, you fulfill it. That's an element of discipline. As Psalm 15 says, the righteous man swears to his own hurt. In other words, he promises something, and then even if it doesn't work out to his benefit, he still follows through with it. That's the point. And so that is to be our marching orders. Number six, be on time. This goes similar with, with telling the truth. If you say you're going to be somewhere at a certain time, you better make sure that you're there. Uh, and there's probably no greater way, at least in my mind, to, to see if somebody is disciplined and organized with whether or not they're habitually late at something. Now, there are always exceptions, right? Uh, there are always things that come up, and that's okay. We understand exceptions. But if the exception is that you're on time, something's wrong. You need to be known as somebody who, who is preferring others, making sure you're on time, making sure that you're not uh, causing them to wait for you. Discipline yourself to be on time. Number seven, seize small units of time. Now, I think this is just really practical. There are always, there are always times in our life where we'll have the five-minute, the ten-minute chunks. And nowadays, in my generation and younger, the five, ten-minute chunks are, oh, well, we'll just open up social media on our phone, and we'll just scroll through that. And because we only have five minutes, we only have ten minutes, and so we do that. But all those five- and ten-minute chunks add up. Prior to that, what would you do if you had five or ten minutes? I know one of the things that some of, my, uh, some of the believers my parents' age told me that they would do is they would pray or they would read a book while they were waiting. Perhaps that's a little better than just scrolling your mind away on social media. Yeah? Seize those small units of time. Don't just think that they're a waste. Uh, but you can pray for someone to get saved in five minutes really easily. It doesn't even take five minutes prioritize this kind of uh, seizing those small units of time. Don't let those, don't let the, let those go to waste. And that's also going to train you to keep thinking about what can I do to glorify God most? What can I do to glorify God most? And let's just put it that way. If you keep thinking that throughout the day, your life is going to change. And so train yourself to seize small units of time. Number eight, do the most difficult task first. I think it's just really good principle. There's always exceptions to that, but good principle to do the most difficult task first whenever possible, just as a, as, a, as a principle, as a rule, to, to train yourself to, to work hard. Number nine, 
work until a task is completed. And again, this is just uh, becoming more and more difficult, working until a task is completed because people's attention spans are, are being lost. In, in fact, I know, even while, while I'm speaking and we're working through this, some of you have gone off into la-la land, come back, gone off again, la-la. You know, the, that's just that's how it happens. But we discipline ourselves to try to stay engaged in a subject until it's done. Number 10, accept correction with meekness. Now, we went over this in fair amount of detail, but I'll just say the reason I, I put this here, accept correction with meekness, is because it really is an element of discipline. We discipline ourselves to accept the rebuke. You need the humble disposition to accept it, but you need the discipline to affect it. And so you need to say, no, even if I feel like rising in rebellion or if I feel like defending myself, I'm going to accept it with meekness. So that's number 10. Number 11 would be practice self-denial. So this is just eminently practical. What I mean by this in practicing self-denial is just the things that you have the right to partake of, just deny yourself. And maybe one example would be dessert, you know? Maybe you, you have this, you're really looking forward to having some nice ice cream tonight. You know, maybe you're just I'm like, oh, I can't wait to have ice cream tonight. And then maybe you go to the freezer, you open up, you get the ice cream pail out or whatever. You just hold it in front of your face. Just imagine just how good that's going to be. How tasty. Oh, delicious. And then say, but I want to work on self-denial. And then you put it back. And... Yeah, I mean, there's, it's not, there's nothing wrong with eating ice cream, right? But there are things that we can choose to do intentionally to just practice. And it's not a bad thing to teach your body that you still know how to say no. Surprise, surprise. It's like, who's in charge? Your desires or you? You're in charge. And so it's, it's, and it's very important because if you can train yourself to think that way, you know, sexual temptation... Uh, the temptation to get uh, impatient, lose, lose anger, all those things become more manageable because you're, you're training yourself to say no to desires. And again, we're not talking aestheticism where you just, we must, you know, uh, remove all delights from our life. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying just, you know, as we would say to an athlete, you know, do some self-discipline, like work on that. You know, it's, yeah, you, it's, you don't have to wake up at 6 in the morning, but try it, you know. Try, try some of that, you know. And, and I think that that's, that's a part of the Christian life, is recognizing that there are things that are not sinful, but we can, we can say no to those periodically just to practice. And that's all I'm advocating for, just some practice. Uh, number 12, wake up. That would be the 12th principle, wake up. Sleep, sleep should be thought of as a, as a means to a goal, not the goal in and of itself. And I do know we all need sleep. I feel like I need more sleep than most people. I always shoot for eight or nine hours, which that surprises a lot of people. I don't always get it. In fact, now with young kids, I don't get it. But, but that's what my goal always is. And so I try to plan around that so that I can wake up in the morning and be refreshed. Some people need more. Some people need less. But the point is don't let sleep be an open-ended, you know, enjoyment thing. It's not a pleasure. It's, it's a means to an end. Uh, so wake up. And then finally, number 13, welcome responsibility. 
So this is a, another, just a very practical way that we can, we can grow in our discipline is just stretch yourself a little more. Yeah, we're all busy, but I can volunteer for this at church. I can do that. I can make it work in my schedule. And then it helps you become more organized and prioritize different things. You know, a sad reality of the, of the Christian life is that it's usually only the most busy people that you can count on in life. It's so ironic, you know, and it drives me crazy, but unfortunately, you know, you just deal with it, is I work with young adults all the time at church, and sometimes I'll ask somebody to do something, and you know what they'll tell me? I don't have time. And I, first, I slap them. I say, all right, tell it to my face again. Like, how many hours of video games did you play this week? Well, I only played like 12 hours this week. It's like, all right, now I just want to strangle them in Christian love, of course. But it's one of those things where uh, a lot of times the most disorderly or unorganized people are the ones who think that they're so busy. But it's, it's the people who have disciplined their life, who have organized it. They, they can prioritize things and say, yeah, I can help you with that, pastor. Yeah, I can help you with that, brother. I can do that. And so I would advocate that you should try to be one of those people, that, that people can count on you. If, if they have a real need, may it, may it be that they think of you as the first one to help solve their problem. What, what, a, what a benediction that would be to your Christian character, where they think of you as the first person they could go to because they know you could make it happen. That's what we should go for. So in order to get there, we welcome responsibility, volunteering here or there to try to stretch ourselves, make ourselves capable of a little bit more, all through God's grace, of course, but just in a very practical way. And so I just want to conclude with this, is that these are super practical ways to grow in self-discipline. And I'm not advocating that we, well, and here I need to say it this way. In self-discipline and self-control, you, you can have a lot of growth in this area. We all can, and we should all be striving for that growth. But then that's why it's so important to have love and humility together. Because if you become a disciplined Christian and you start to exercise and, and through God's grace get control of your life, it's going to be very tempting to look at everybody else and say, what an inferior Christian. Do they not see what a pattern I have implemented in my life? I mean, I fast twice a week, and I do, you could go down that list, right? But that's not the goal of self-discipline. It's not so that you can elevate yourself over other people. It's simply and only just to be more useful to the Lord. It doesn't matter who knows if you're disciplined or not, but they will know. It's impossible not to, see, not to observe somebody who's really disciplined. But that's why you need humility, because it's not you. It's not for your glory. All it is, is for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we could spend hours talking about these things, but I pray that you would take this lesson, this lesson especially, because it is so important in a culture which has rejected all semblance of discipline and order and elevated self-seeking. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be disciplined men, humble men, loving men, not for our glory, but for yours. Amen.